Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to everyone joining us for the winner episode of Read Smart, the official podcast for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. I'm Razia Iqbal. Now, on the 16th of November, John Valiant was named the 2023 winner of the prize with his book, Fire Weather, a true story from a hotter world. This towering book details a multi-billion dollar apocalyptic disaster which drove 90,000 people from their homes in a single afternoon. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by John Valiant today. Welcome to the podcast, John, and huge congratulations to you. Thank you so much, Rasia. It's really wonderful to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Now, first of all, tell us about your night, how you felt when you heard your name being called out. Oh, it's totally shocking. You know, it's really, um, it's such a complex of feelings, really. Uh, there's, there's disbelief. There's, you know, there's obviously a part of you that's always been hoping that you might be chosen. So you're kind of grasping with that. And then for me, as a writer, keenly aware of kind of how lonely and difficult the enterprise is, I honestly kind of went immediately to thinking about my cohort and the other five writers. And it's poignant. And, um, you know, you want to bring them along. You want to stay together. And so, you know, I struggled with that. And, and on the other hand, I'm incredibly proud and deeply, deeply grateful uh, to the jury who is clearly erudite and, and, and broad in their knowledge and, and the attention that they gave all of us is just one of the rarest gifts um, a writer can receive, you know, that quality of concentrated attention, you know, and with a discerning eye. And, um, you know, it's deeply moving uh, to me to consider that, you know, to really take that in. And we, I was talking about this last night, you know, in the acceptance speech, it's really a labor of love. You know, it's a labor of love uh, to write, and, and, but also to read and to read closely uh, is, a, is, a, is another kind of labor of love. And so I was really feeling that last night. Well, what a deeply generous uh, response that is. And, and in a way, I feel like you're, you're also thanking me without knowing it because I was a judge of this prize. Oh, oh really? And being a judge of this prize actually changed my relationship uh, with nonfiction. I mean, I'm, I'm a news journalist by training, but, uh -huh. but work in academia now. But I, you know, the, it, it completely changed how I viewed the the sustained argument that it's required to write a book about one subject. Mm. And, and, and I want to ask you about the choice of this subject for you. When did you alight on that? And, and how did you think about writing this? The moment when all of us, you know, tuned into that news, saw the petroleum hub of Fort McMurray shrouded in wildfire smoke was so shocking. You know, it wasn't as shocking as 9-11, but it creates the same kind of dissonance. You know, this was a it, this is a really wealthy town, a city full of, you know, technologically capable people with huge equipment that they can bring to bear to alter any landscape. And the idea of it being overwhelmed, not by a petroleum fire, not by a 
fire that started in the city, but by a fire that started in the forest and swept into the city, it just was almost inconceivable. So I think there really was a moment when, you know, a lot of us just couldn't believe our eyes. It was so shocking. And then you're, then you're thinking about, well, what about all those people? You know, there are 90,000 people um, who need to get out of there. And you could see, you know, from the aerial video, these streams of cars coming out. There's only one road in and one road out. So, you know, going from disbelief and shock to real fear for the people under there. And there were days, there were literally days went by when you just didn't know, you know, who had made it out and who hadn't. So we're all processing this as Canadians. And, you know, I live in Vancouver in Western Canada, not that far from Alberta. So there's a kind of, you know, local concern there. And I was actually in Italy at the time. So I was quite remote from the whole scene and wondering what on earth am I doing this far from home when this is really the biggest story in a generation for, for my part of the world. And so all that was going through my mind. And I also thought, you know, this is clearly a story. And journalists were piling on. There were some journalists who were already in the city uh, it was clear to me after a couple of days as the fire continued to spread and the damage continued to accrue that, you know, books were going to be written about this. And then I thought, well, you know, do I want to do that? And, you know, if you're familiar with any of my previous work, I generally, you know, I've only written two other nonfiction books and they were about events in the past, the recent past, but in the past in the sense that when you put them down and went to get a cup of coffee, they would be where you left them. This was not like that. This was changing moment to moment. And that was a really different kind. That's more like what you do. You know, I work slowly in a very reflective, uh, considered way. I'm, I'm not a very quick thinker, honestly. So this uh, was challenging because of that. And so uh, I don't think I realized that it was a book until I was able to conceptualize what the story might look like, because I didn't want to write another disaster book. I, that felt almost disrespectful, given the moment that we're in right now with climate. You know, to write it like the sinking of an ocean liner or something like that, just it, it felt kind of base, and I didn't want to participate in that. So how can you write about this in a way that actually illuminates us and maybe empowers us to move into the future in a in a in a more enlightened way. The recognition of this book in your winning this prize, and I and I think you have been shortlisted, and this book has won other accolades um, too. It does indicate to to, to many people that it it acts as a as an urgent warning and an omen. Reflect for us, if you will, on on what you think that warning is and how we should be responding to it. That our allegiance to the status quo, as understandable as it is, as natural and human as, as it is, is a liability. And part of our status quo through this past century has been a deep reliance on fossil fuels, in particular, increasingly on petroleum, to power our lives, to help realize our ambitions, 
to help us enrich ourselves. And it's clear now, scientifically, but also practically on the ground uh, through lived experience, that that status quo, a petroleum-driven status quo, is not sustainable or advisable. So Fort McMurray is a place fully dependent on petroleum development. It's a petroleum boomtown. Incredible fortunes have been made there, even by you know, carpenters and plumbers. And nobody wants to let go of that money. No one wants to get off that gravy train. And yet, uh, that industry and our appetite for these fuels has, has created this new situation. And so I coined a term, which is 21st century fire, which burns differently now. It behaves differently now. And so it means something different for us. The implications of fire have changed. And so in that sense, it's a, it's a kind of real-time glimpse of the future. And that's really how I felt interviewing you know, these regular folks and civilians and firefighters in Fort McMurray and, and elsewhere in California too, further south. These are visitors from the future. And uh, almost, it's almost like talking to Ezekiel or Isaiah and their prophets. And they're ordinary people, but they're describing this near future with in incredible vividness. And it's really terrifying. And we, I, you know, I don't want that to happen to other people and neither do they. And so it felt like kind of a collaborative effort, you know, of here is this scenario that they've already lived through. This is why it happens. This is how people respond. And I got really into you know, just how resistant people were to the idea that a fire could come into their town to the point that they endangered their own lives. Uh, not because they were in denial, just because it's really hard to let go of what we know and love. That's that's the crux of this, isn't it? That people, you talk about this as a gravy train, this is a this is a boom town. And and years after this apocalyptic fire that that resulted in the evacuation of tens of thousands of, of people and the destruction, the physical destruction of so much um, of that town, there there still does not seem to be a willingness. These people may not have been able to imagine that this could happen to them, but it did happen to them. And yet there still is a sense of burying their heads in that sand. That is a really interesting phenomenon. I think a lot of us thought, you know, on the climate side of things, that once people go through, you know, a a climate-enhanced event, you know, whether it's the terrible flooding you've been experiencing in the UK or the fires in Canada, that they'll sort of, you know, become believers and, and maybe become activists or advocates for climate action. But if you're living your status, your future, as you imagine it, literally depends on your allegiance to the petroleum industry, the cause of, of, of this, um, your mind will do some really interesting things in order to keep you at peace doing the same thing, even though it's, you know, clearly destructive. And so there's all kinds of, you know, humans can clearly, you know, just look at the news. We can rationalize any kind of behavior. And so when your mortgage depends on it, when your family's well-being, your partner's happiness depends on that, the income that you're, that you're now getting, 
you don't want to rock that boat or, or, or compromise that. And so in Alberta, which is really, you know, one the shorthand way to understand it, it's the Texas of Canada. Many, many similarities. And you don't talk about climate there. And, you know, at, at the government level, they're in complete climate denial. And because they are, they are almost really a hostage to the petroleum industry. And that creates incredible dissonance for people. And I, these are not dumb people. They understand what's going on, but they're making these trade-offs. And the, the, everyone I've spoke to who I interviewed for that book, you know, I've checked in with them more recently, and all of their lives are different. They've either left Fort McMurray, or they have PTSD, or they've really lost faith in their institutions, or they have other issues. They're just living in terror of burning down again. Um, so none of their lives are the same. That they, that There's no way to return to the old life they had. So they're kind of accommodating. They're making all these accommodations. And I think that, that it takes a psychic toll and a physical toll you know, to do that. And, and, and yet we are seeing in, in Texas an embracing of... Um, new clean energy projects. I mean, you make that comparison with between Alberta and Texas, and, and there is a moratorium, I understand, on all new energy uh, projects in, in Alberta. And, and, and in a way, it does lead me to ask the question on behalf of the next generation, that when they see that happening, that there is, there has been an experience, it's been devastating, but there's been no shift. And, and I think there is, there is something in the collective psyche of young people who are becoming climate activists that makes them think this, this cannot be allowed to sit. The status quo is not okay with us. And, and that's absolutely the truth. Uh, and that, I believe that is the case. And so what you see is people who may have grown up in that industry wanting to stay in that industry, but there's a, um, a petroleum engineer degree that you can get uh, at a university in Calgary, uh, which is, you know, the, the Dallas, you know, or the Houston of, of Alberta. Well, they closed that program due to low enrollment. And this is in Alberta. You know, this is petroleum central for Canada. And they closed that program down because young people didn't want to do it. And, and so that, to me, is a really important piece of data, that, that some of this is generational. And we're going through a generational transition. We're going through an energy transition, the likes of which no one has ever seen, and nothing comparable has happened really since the turn of the last century when cars became more dominant and you started seeing petroleum driven vehicles, you know, all across the developed world. And, you know, we haven't, that hasn't happened in a century, such a transition. So this is an extraordinary moment. It's not going to happen overnight. Even so, it's happening with astonishing rapidity. And it is amazing to see Texas, which is another place where you're not allowed to talk about climate change, almost by law, um, where a history of the petroleum industry in the United States, you know, is central, uh, you know, to that place and remains so, they are still moving ahead with wind and solar uh, at a really impressive clip. And because, you know, they're intelligent people who see the future and also see, frankly, an opportunity, you know, to cash in. There is money to be made in, a, in electric energy and renewable energy, just as there is 
and was in petroleum. So, you know, people see the writing on the wall and lots of people are open, open to change. And it's going to be uneven. And Alberta, you know, may be sitting alone, you know, with the crumbs, you know, at the end of all this. It may, I, I don't see how they come out of this uh, on the upside. Well, one of the things that's so impressive in your book is um, the way in which you talk about the fire itself. The fire, you know, the lots of the people that you have interviewed in the book are people who have been directly impacted by it and their reflections, their experiences, and you have at your disposal footage and images and, and firsthand testimony and so on. But but fire is a protagonist in this book. And and I and I I wonder if you'll just say a little bit about the qualities of fire that make it the central character here. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, because that certainly wasn't intended at the beginning. You know, I, I think I saw it the way most reporters and nonfictioneers see it. You know, here's this event. Here are these people. Let's find the characters. Let's have them take us through it. And then the fact that the fire, it didn't just race through the city on May 3rd and head off into the forest on the other side of town. It came back and it came back again. And it burned in and around the city for nine or ten days, and you know, and the you know the Great Fire of London lasted for about five days. The Great Edo Fire in 1767 or whatever in Japan burnt for three days. These are historic, legendary fires. Great Chicago Fire burned for about 36 hours. This fire kept coming back and kept coming back like it wasn't done, like it wanted more. And, you know, it is an it is an absolute um, cardinal sin of nonfiction and science writing to anthropomorphize preachers that aren't people. Uh, so I don't do that. But I get as close as I safely scientifically can. And the similarities between humans and fire are actually enormous. You know, we are both oxygen driven. We suffocate and die without it. We have to fuel our internal fires. We have to consume calories to keep going. And the reason why we go, the reason why fire moves, the reason is the same reason people move, is to ultimately find more fuel. And oxygen is keeping that going all the time. And so we are, uh, you know, gas burning, heat generating appetites is one way to look at human beings. That's exactly what fire is, too. And fire can regenerate. Fire can adapt to changing conditions. It can do all kinds of things that living creatures do. And so I explored the idea, fruitfully, I think, of humans and fire's kinship. I mean, I, I think the, the, the hunt that is involved in the fire's um, trajectory and the greed that the fire appears to to have does does suggest that there are these parallel um, these metaphors that you are using to try and explain the the greed of the fossil fuel industry yeah. and of course is informed by us human beings. And so, what really informs it, though, it's not because humans and fires are so alike. You know, it's not because 
wildfire economics, as you know, I decided to call it, is a uniquely human and pyrological commonality. It's because this is what the planet that we live on allows and encourages. This is a planet where things grow. It's the only planet we know of where, where that happens. And it could be a dandelion growing. It could be a crystal growing. It could be a baby growing. It could be a fire growing. It could be a multinational corporation growing. But there is this natural impulse to expand, to expand across territory, to consume resources, and in the case of you know many creatures, to consume as much as possible, at least in the moment. And so these are natural tendencies that then can be you know altered, corrupted, perverted, enhanced, you know whatever whatever adjective uh, you know you want to put on it. Uh, in all kinds of different ways, depending on who or what is doing it. But I just think that's really interesting that, that we live, you know, in such a place. You know, it's an, we're incredibly lucky to be here. It, it, in, indeed, but perhaps not for that much longer, given how we continue to behave. I mean, I, I, I wonder, I wonder, given the denial that you have outlined in the context of the aftermath of this fire, um, at uh, Fort McMurray, what what hopes you have for the book in the context of attempting to change the minds of people and 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 prevent them from behaving in in the same way continuously? Oh, I, I'm very hopeful, and you know I recognize the risks, and anyone who reads Fire Weather will see you know that I do that, that I do recognize that. At the same time, you know I think. People in in full on denial, like the kind you see at the government level in Fort Mac in uh, Alberta, are in the minority. And you know we've seen through every destructive social movement, there's sort of a hardcore thirty percent of the population that will just go that way. You know that is not interested in questioning, that will pick an ideology and stick to it no matter what. Is not interesting. Is not interested in having a conversation is not interested in learning, and will be hostile if, if you confront them on it. So um, I think there are a lot of other people, though, who are more open-minded, who can see the evidence, which is abundant, and want something better and healthier and more hopeful uh, for themselves and their children. And so, you know, that would be my advice, you know, to myself and to anybody else is to to go toward that energy is go be with those people go be on that team um and you know as someone who's on twitter and you know has trolls harassing him you know i've engaged them a couple of times and it's totally fruitless you know they are there to basically suck up energy and poison it and so don't engage you know you don't have to change everybody's mind what matters is getting together with other people that are moving in a direction that feels healthy and sane to you. And to me, what feels healthy and sane is decarbonizing and managing my appetite in a way that reduces my need for combustion. And that's an exciting challenge, especially now, because there is absolutely a renewable energy revolution underway on a scale uh, that, to my mind, based on what I've seen, resembles the uptake of 
the smartphone in 2007. You know, in 2006, there were not smartphones. In 2009, everybody had them. And it's going to take longer with that global energy system, but incredible things are happening on the renewable energy file, on the on the battery and and energy, uh, you know, retention and and release uh, front. Uh, so it's you know we're we're in a historic moment, likes of which we've never seen. It'll probably take a generation, um, and you know. The stakes are, couldn't be higher. I'm delighted to hear how hopeful you are. But if you didn't know before you were shortlisted for this prize and now have won, you you will be acutely aware that the sponsors of this prize, Bailey Gifford, um, have investments, not unlike many other companies, in fossil fuels. I I wonder how how you how that sits with you now that you've won. You know, how does taking a jet to come and participate? in the Bailey Gifford Prize sit with me, uh, uneasily, uneasily. But you know that the jet plane is an incredible invention that has enabled all kinds of people to get together, to be together. It's connected distant families. It does all kinds of tremendously positive things. And so what I hope to do, and I hope to engage with, with people who work at uh, Bailey Gifford and talk about this. And, you know, business cannot function right now without fossil fuels. And at the same time, we need to transition to a, a lower carbon energy system and economy yesterday. So that's what I'm interested in talking about is how we make that tr transition in a conscientious and, uh, and faithful way and you know, I I I actually testified kind of against uh, a petroleum executive up in Canada in Parliament, um, in a House committee there just a couple of weeks ago, and he is an executive who is not willing to engage in a productive way. Uh, he is interested in serving his share shareholders and maximizing profits at all costs, and just you know he knows what's happening climatically but he will not engage in, in a meaningful or productive or sincere way. And so uh, I'm assuming that Bailey Gifford isn't like that. And I'm eager to have conversations with people who want to move the needle in a positive direction. And um, so I remain hopeful. And, you know, Bailey Gifford, this prize, I'm talking to you right now. It's given me a platform. And, and I don't want to use that platform to, you know, dump on an industry that is so integral to how we live now. But I, what I want to use it as a platform for, if I may, is to look bravely and closely at this interdependence and, and why this interdependence is so hard to shake, because there are very energetic uh interests in the petroleum industry, in the petroleum lobby, uh, who are eager to maintain the status quo of burning. And that's what, you know, the, the fossil fuel industry is a fire industry. It empowers us. Unfortunately, it also, frankly, it empowers the climate, you know, to create a more combustible world. And so it, it cuts both ways. And I really think a lot of people are re ready to look at that squarely 
Uh, it's one reason the book has reached this point uh, in the in the public consciousness. And I think uh, I think executives, you know, are part of that too. And um, I'm excited. Also, I mean, I wonder in terms of the American. Uh, market and the American mentality, given that more than 40% of America's oil imports come from Fort McMurray. I mean, that is considerable. It is, it is not, it, it, it creates an interdependency that we see all over the world in lots of different countries. And, and that is one of the things that feels to many people who are not just making money out of it, but looking at it in terms of how can that be dismantled? Basically, the, the Canadian bitumen industry has been sort of a dirty secret that Americans haven't wanted to look at. And it's very tied in with the Koch brothers. They have the refineries on the border that are capable, they among others, have refineries on the border that are capable of processing this really degraded, low grade, this low grade uh, petroleum coming out of Fort McMurray. Um, you know, so there's a whole organization that is really interested in not dealing with climate in, you know, undermining democracy and making as much money off the backs of workers in the earth as they possibly can. For what reason, I don't know. Uh, but that seems to be how they roll. And I think, you know, with each successive expose, I mean, Patrick Radden Keefe's book, Empire of Pain, you know, about the Sackler family and OxyContin, you know, that really moved the needle. And these you know, this there is a role for for books like this to play in educating the public about things they might rather not know about or wish they didn't know about. But once you know about it, you can't unsee it. And, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the needle is moving. It's not fast enough, you know, for the safety of the earth or for for many of us, you know, alive and conscious today. But I think it's inevitable. Uh, you know, the, the, the bitumen industry's days are numbered. Well, that, that's that's an extraordinary thing to hear, and and very welcome. How how much have you been doing events related to this book in Alberta? Very few. I think there's a very uneasy relationship to this book there. I I've gotten no negative press about it, and I think that's partly because the workers of Fort McMurray, the firefighters, are portrayed, um, you know, with sympathy and integrity. You know that. All those people know each other and, uh, you know, they're accurately quoted and sympathetically portrayed. And it's clear, you know, that I really care about them. Um, on the other hand, you know, the industry, you know, I, I don't pull any punches there. And the industry has behaved in some cynical and very destructive ways. Um, so I think that it creates this tension between how I make my living and who I know and um I just know that, you know, people in Alberta, uh, because I met a lot of them, you know, are, are smart people who are aware and are managing extraordinary tensions and balancing the needs of their families and their own economic situation with this larger dissonant reality that they operate within. And honestly, we're all in that same place. You know, they're just, it's more obvious in their case because they work in the industry, but all of us benefit from the industry in different ways. And so their dissonance is our dissonance too.
you you certainly come across John as a as a soldier in this um in this battle to try and shift that dissonance and 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 make changes and and perhaps your your book is is much more than a soldier maybe it is just a uh, a general uh, leading leading the way um thank you so much john valiant um for speaking to us here on read smart and huge huge congratulations uh once again i wish you all the very best uh with this book my thanks once again to the winner, John Valiant, and him speaking about his prize there and how he felt about winning. I've also been speaking to some students from the University of Birmingham. Now, they have been keeping an eye on the prize over the past year, and for quite a few of them, this is their first foray into nonfiction reading. Let's start with... E. Lawrence and Georgie Thatcher. Now, you have been reading uh, Time's Echo, but I don't want to ask you specifically yet about the book. Tell me first what it's been like reading the these books or following the prize generally. What, what has been your interest in, in nonfiction? B, why don't you go first? Um, well, prior to this year, I really, I really hadn't had much of an interest in nonfiction at all. I'd been very much fiction-based, uh, poetry-based, just because that's what we studied in, like, through A-levels throughout GCSE. But, I mean, it's been a really, really interesting experience, like, stepping out of the comfort zone for me, definitely, and reading these books, just getting such an insight into uh, history and, like, everything going around the world. It makes me feel a lot more connected with the uh, book as well, because it's just, it feels more real and more relevant. And, and Georgie, what about you? How much nonfiction did you read before you got involved in following this prize? So same as B, really. I've done English literature for my whole education, and it's mostly all poetry, fiction. And I love history as well, but I have very specific historical interests, and I don't really branch out from those too often. So I've read nonfiction before, but I'm very confined with what I read. So it was nice to read something outside my historical comfort zones for once. And had you thought about the process of a prize before? I mean, is this something, you know, obviously culturally book prizes are in the ether, whether you take notice of them or not. I mean, had you thought about the process of a book prize? I mean, all I really heard about before were like the winners. So mm. it's really interesting to like delve into the entire process behind it. The applications, the long list, the short list. Mm. So, yeah, no, I didn't really know about that. So, so why don't you start, um, Georgie, by telling me what you thought about um, about Jeremy Iker's book, Times Echo. When you think about the Holocaust, you, well, for me anyway, because, like, I don't know, I only ever really thought about the horrible, horrible impacts of it. You never really think about, like, what can come out of it, what can be created out of something that bad, because no one really talks about it. So I find it really interesting to hear from like a different perspective that I'd never thought of before about what can happen from the ashes of something really bad. B, B what about you? What what struck you by, uh, what struck you from, from, from reading this particular book? Um, well, for me, and I think it was something that he also mentioned in the, the podcast that he did, um, is that we, we've studied a lot of, um, we know of a lot of post-war like memorial art, like paintings, poetry. I mean, everyone knows like Wilfred Owen's um, First World War poetry, and, but we never really thought about music as a connection and a way to remember um, the Second World War. And I, I mean, I've sung in a choir and I've sung um, some Benjamin Britten, some like some of the Requiem and I've heard it sung and it's never really like connected because that's one of the, um, 
composers that he like talks about in his book. So it's really it was it was really interesting to me to see that that how that's shaped and how the book's been shaped through music and how yeah. So I really enjoyed it. T tell me what it was like being at um, at the Cheltenham Literary Festival because this is now kind of part of the Bailey Gifford process of announcing uh, the shortlist. Uh, so the shortlisted. Um, writers at the festival is 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 going to a literary festival part of something that you've done before either of you for me personally it's not something I've ever done I come from quite like a deprived area so like my school never went to anything like that so for me the opportunity to go to something like that to see all those different things and I didn't realize there was like talks because I've never ever been to anything like that before so I find it really eye-opening and some of the stuff they talked about at the talks I was like I didn't even think this would be part of the literature festival but it was and I really enjoyed it. Does that mean that you might uh you you are now somebody who might go to literary festivals I'd from now on? I'd love to I'd absolutely love to I think if I can have the opportunity to do it near where I live I'd like to maybe even go back to my old secondary school and say you should bring the kids to this because I think it would be a really good opportunity for them as well. That's fantastic. And and has it also changed your view of how much more broadly you might want to read from now on? I mean, do you think you will pick up, say, the winning book from this year? I'll definitely, I'm definitely going to give that a read. It's on my reading list. Um and it's a lot of nonfiction books, especially on this, on the long list as well. They've taken a bit of precedence over my, over the fiction books on my reading list as well. So I'm really excited to get into that. <laughs> to the detriment of your university work, I. <laughs> Thank you both for speaking to me. That's lovely. Thank you. Let's turn now to Amy Wallace and, and uh, Ben Davis. Uh, so give me a sense of what was exciting about being part of this, this particular project. Uh, ben, let's start with you. Um, I had not, I sound like a broken record here, like the, um, I hadn't had much experience reading non-fiction works before. So I was more sort of getting involved as it was something, a project at university that I was sort of get yourself stuck in first semester sort of thing. But no, I was pleasantly surprised because I'd, I've read, um, Mr. B, the Balanchine biography by Jennifer Holm. Um, I was pleasantly surprised because other than my sisters dragging on about it at home. I hadn't had much experience with dance at all, let alone one of the trailblazing figures of the 20th century choreography. But I was pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed it. So it's been a great experience. Did, why did you volunteer to be part of this group? I mean, I'm interested in in not having read very much nonfiction, but but also throwing yourself into something like this. No, I'd, um, the last years at of A-level and stuff, I'd been very sort of immersed in the fiction side of things and close reading of poetry and novels and sort of fiction side of things. So I wanted to sort of broaden my horizons in that sort of sense, especially with the dance, something that I hadn't encountered at all really before. But I sort of, I loved the book, in not just in terms of the knowledge I gained from the dance, but the context surrounding it. I'm very interested in the the music and the lit Russian literature side of that part of history, the avant-garde, early Soviet um, Soviet artistic scene. So it was really interesting to get another facet of that sort of environment and culture. A Amy, you read the winning book. Of course, you didn't know it was going to be the winner, Fire Weather by John Valiant. Uh, what was your experience of, of taking part in this? Um, well, the reason I chose the book is because I'd actually studied the fires for um, Geography A-Level 
And I think it, it's such an incredible book because it's not just, it doesn't just teach you about the fire and the way it happened and all the impacts. It teaches you the individual story of each person. I don't think I've come across that in any of my studies of the fire so far because I knew all the facts and figures and the science behind it. But the research and individual stories were just made it so different. Just staying with you for a moment, Amy, I mean, what was your experience like of, of going to the Cheltenham Literary Festival? I mean, it's one of the one of the leading festivals um, in the country. I just wondered whether you had been to a festival like that before, what it meant to you, what you got out of it. I actually have been to the Cheltenham Literary Festival when I was very, very young with my family. And I think what's so special about it is the fact it really involves lots of children. And in a more digital age, it's very important that kids connect to literature more. And I remember absolutely loving it when I was little, like all the all the books and all the authors and everything. Is this the kind of thing that will make you want to tell people around you to read more nonfiction, Ben? Um, yeah, 100%, especially, as I've said before, how alien the dance scene was to me. I had, prior to entering the project and being assigned the book, I had absolutely no interest or even fathom reading a a 600 page book on dancing but I found myself entrenched in the entrenched in the book so no it's in terms of something that you're not even considering being an interest of yours I like I'm looking forward to reading the winning book later when I've finished the semester and have a break at Christmas and stuff you definitely will I mean I think this is what's really in, intriguing about this project that you're all involved in that that it is making you want to read the other books on the shortlist. Uh, uh, Amy, do you think that you will also pick up some of the others on the on the six? Yeah, I think I will. I think there's a lot of interesting topics that I don't know a lot about, and I'd really love to learn about more in more depth. And I think that can definitely help me with that. Thank you both very much. Jatong Sung, you chose Tanya Brannigan's Red Memory, which is um, which traces the kind of history of the Cultural Revolution, but how it made an impact on on individuals. You were drawn quite obviously to this book. You wanted to read about China. Mm, yes, because I think I was born and raised in China, and I uh, before I came to UK, most of books I read is in um, Chinese version. So uh, I want to know how the other describe Chinese history. And what was your impression? Uh, my impression is that uh, through the reading this book, I really learned that uh, the, great, uh, the cultural revolution is a period of the time where uh, the leader uh, makes uh, some mistakes that lead uh, China into very tur turbulent status. Um, and I think uh, it is normal for leaders um, to make mistakes. Uh, especially I read a book session where it's mentioned uh, uh, part of uh, Red Guards, which is a group of children that's uh, fascinated by uh, president. And uh, actually they really did something uh, really bad. But I think um, oh, my, uh, the president, the president uh, Mao Zedong, he actually uh, really contributed a lot to, to China's uh, 
especially to the uh, Chinese peoples. And I think uh, he's a great leader, but obviously he also made some mistakes. I'm so interested in hearing you say that you had only read um, the Chinese interpretation of the Cultural Revolution. Do you feel like this is a book that you would want your family to read, your Chinese friends to read? Would it be a book that you would recommend? Mm, yes, I think I will uh, recommend because most of my, my friends are uh, born in 2005 and actually the Cultural Revolution uh, took place in 1960s. Uh, I think I didn't experience the history of cultural revolution. So I, uh, through d- reading this book, I have a better understanding about Chinese history. And did you enjoy this experience of being part of this project? What did you What did you like about it the most? Uh, I liked the most about the literate festival because I've never been that kind of activity before in China. And uh, during this uh, festival, I met some new people and new friends. And I think that's a great experience. Let's let's turn to Eliza Elmer Hall. Uh, Eliza, what was your experience like being part of this, this whole process of, of being involved with the prize and seeing it from, um, from the long list to the short list and then through to the winner? What was that like? Yeah, I found it really kind of eye-opening. I think I've always sort of been interested in the literary world um, and kind of hope to sort of work in that in the future. Um, So I've really found the kind of experience of seeing how kind of a literary prize functions and the kind of different stages of progression that it goes through. I found it really interesting. Were there things that surprised you about the process? Yeah, I think definitely when I saw the long list, I was kind of struck by just like the expansive range of books that were on the long list. And I think it kind of made me wonder like how difficult of a job it must be for the judges to kind of make a selection from such a range of books, kind of from like historical topics to topics on sort of culture and the environment. Um, Yeah, so I found that really interesting and eye-opening. I can tell you it is a really, really hard thing to do. I've been a judge on this prize and, and, and others too. Um, I was a judge on this prize in 2017, and it, it is a really, really difficult um, process to choose between books that are not um, at all similar, but also the range of subjects um, about which very few of us are experts, um, if at all. The, the one that you read, Revolutionary Spring, how how did, I mean, did that, did that teach you things you didn't know? Was it a, a, a book that you enjoyed reading? Yeah, I really, I found it a really enjoyable experience um, reading about it. And I think, yeah, it kind of, I was struck, obviously, because it's quite a long book and it covers quite a short historical period. Um, So I think when I sort of first picked it up, I was wondering kind of how um, Clark would kind of zoom in on such a small period for kind of that length of book. But I was really struck by kind of how engaging the book was, kind of, he kind of focuses on like lots of different, revolutions but he manages to kind of present them in quite a connected way and explore kind of how Europe was sort of connected by all of these different revolutions that were happening um, in this short space of time um, so it was really enjoyable to kind of learn about that period. And, and are you struck enough by 
being involved in this to to want to read the other five books on the on the shortlist, including, of course, the winner. Yeah, definitely. I think, like everyone else that's spoken, I have never really been a massive nonfiction reader before. But um, yeah, I definitely was pleasantly surprised by how engaging I found it. Um, kind of reading more nonfiction, so I'll definitely take that up in the future. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks so much for being with us. We'd like again to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its continued generous support of this podcast. If you'd like to revisit any moments from over the past year, you can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for joining us on such a brilliant literary journey this year. Now, if you're interested in finding out more about The Longlist, Shortlist or our winner, you can visit our website or follow us on Twitter, I think we have to call it X now, really, don't we? Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at, at BG Prize. Thanks so much for being with us. Bye-bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.